This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, the last few years have shed light on what may be described as mission creep in policing. Law enforcement officers have been asked to do an awful lot of duties that may not have been with the original job description. Things like dealing with drug addiction and homeless issues certainly stretch the expertise of professional law enforcement personnel. The defund movement may have actually been good in outsourcing some of these duties. I think most of us can agree that dealing with people affected with serious mental health issues have been problematic and vexing. Solutions are appearing. The FCC adopted rules to establish 988 as the new nationwide three-digit phone number for mental health emergencies, set to go live July 16th, 2022. Dispatchers will triage calls to route them to the most appropriate resource, civilian, medical, or law enforcement agency. Today, we have Dr. Vincent Atchity of the Mental Health Colorado and the Equitus Project. Dr. Vincent Atchity has served as Mental Health Colorado's president and CEO since 2019, and he currently leads the organization's Care Not Cuffs initiative. He previously served as executive director of the Equitus Project, a national initiative to disentangle mental health and criminal justice, which has now become part of Mental Health Colorado. Vincent is an advocate for public health and health equity, a population health management strategist, and a builder of communications bridges connecting communities and community partners with better health outcomes and more efficiently managed costs. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Vincent Atchity. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Hey, it's great to have you, an expert on what we're talking about today. Uh, certainly so many calls uh, involving people with crisis and mental health um, issues uh, come to the lap of law enforcement. Tell us about the Equitus Project and, and if you will, Care Not Cuffs. Sure. Well, the Equitas Project is our national initiative to, as we've been saying, disentangle mental health and criminal justice. Uh, and Care Not Cuffs is our effort to rally the nation, you know, in anticipation of the launch of that new 988 number uh, to, you know, demand and expect health care uh, in response to health needs and really promote the partners around the country who are doing great innovative work in terms of diverting people toward healthcare when what they're dealing with is addiction and other mental health issues. So what does that mean when we talk about, uh, you know, a city like San Francisco or any city with a large population of you know, frequent flyers, people that we're constantly dealing with, where it may feel like the law to the law enforcement officer that they're going through this revolving door, right? They are a, a threat to their own safety, that of others, or they're gravely disabled. We take them to a psychiatric emergency hospital. 
you know, they can stay there up to 72 hours, then they're back out and we repeat the process. How are these these issues going to be changed with Equitas and Carenot Cups? Well, you named it. I mean, these are the, the main considerations and, you know, why we as advocates really see law enforcement partners as key allies in this advocacy movement because uh, folks who work in law enforcement understand better than anybody else in the country the nature of this phenomenon where because we do not have a systematic approach to supporting people with these kinds of health issues in the community, uh, they have this endless revolving door. So Kiernan Cuffs doesn't you know, what we're hoping for is attention on the issue uh, so that law enforcement has a resource and has a, you know, has a has a place to go. I mean, what we've been saying is there's just no there there when it comes to an alternative to arrest and incarceration. Uh, what we need is as a as a community nationwide is we need to come to terms with the fact that people with serious mental illness need long-term residential care uh, in many cases. And people living with addiction issues need an open door pathway to you know, detox, recovery, and a sustainable life beyond addiction. And homelessness, of course, is wrapped up uh, in all of this. You know, we, you know, our communities get frustrated with the tense under bridges uh, and in parks and call on the law enforcement partners to address that issue. But the communities seemingly do not have the political will to create a viable alternative other than moving people from one location out of one location without figuring out what we're doing with them. And we really need to come to terms with the affordability of housing and the need that the need that people have for supportive housing. And we also need to come to terms with uh, when it's appropriate to be thinking about civil commitment of different kinds, uh, you know, whether it's commitment to inpatient long-term care or outpatient commitment, where what we're doing is committing people to a course of treatment and, um, you know, a, a course of medication that they have to be compliant with so that they can stay well and uh, be stabilized and function in the community in a way that is not as disruptive as prevalent homelessness is. And we need to be building alternatives, you know, and some cities are, but we, we really need to, when we dislodge people from their tent cities, we need to be not dislodging them, but relocating them in ways that are, you know, pro-health and, um, have a long-term better prospect for people's recovery and well-being. Well, well, those are all great ideas, but won't we have to change institutionally and systematically? I mean, when we talk about the three probably largest uh, confinement um, locations for those with serious mental illnesses and crime, we're talking about places like um, you know, Chicago and Rikers Island in New York and the LA County uh, Sheriff's Department as holding facilities for these since the Reagan era, right? Since we deinstitutionalized uh, caring for mental health individuals, uh, they've fallen back, like I said, onto the laps of law enforcement. So as a nation, are we going to be taking a better approach at 
um, holding facilities? I mean, you talked about uh, something like conservatorship or an ombudsman maybe, but in California, we have Laura's law that was enacted after uh, a young volunteer at a mental health facility was shot in the face by someone who probably should have been in an institution. And so when we actually uh, enacted that uh, law, of the 52 counties in California, only two adopted it. And, and since 15 years or so, it, since it's passed, more and more counties have adopted Laura's law that would actually give us the authority to take people and force them into uh, this conservatorship. Will we be doing that on a national level? Well, you know, I think that we need to understand and and you point out rightly that there was that deinstitutionalization phenomenon associated with the Reagan era and you know there was a good aspect to that because what what from the mental health advocacy perspective one of the things that deinstitutionalization acknowledged was that big psychiatric institutions were not pro human pro health so much as warehousing people uh, in conditions that were sometimes neglectful, if not abusive, uh, with scarce, scarce science when it came to really improving people's health outcomes. And so, you know, those old, that old notion of those giant psychiatric institutions are still the subject matter for horror movies, right? Uh, and we don't want to go in that direction. And, you know, what was supposed to accompany the closure of those giant facilities was community-based care of different kinds in smaller settings and outpatient to the greatest extent possible. But that was just never developed. Uh, We never developed the alternative. And as a consequence, we have homelessness and incarceration. And so we really, as as a nation, need to come to terms with a totally different approach to managing people with serious mental illness. And it has to include some amount of commitment. And, you know, that that commitment should not be thought of as, you know, people in straight jackets and shackled to walls and cells where they're neglected. It's supposed to be caring and, you know, recover the notion of the word asylum, which which means sanctuary. It's a place that keeps people safe from themselves, uh, keeps others safe from those who are, have a propensity to ha- you know, be violent as a part of a psychotic reaction. But the orientation of those kinds of settings has to be pro-health and pro-human, and uh, we just don't have that kind of capacity at all. And many people uh, who are experiencing homelessness or incarcerated don't even necessarily need long-term inpatient commitment. But what they do need may be long-term shelter. You know, they may need a roof over their heads accompanied by support services and care, people who are going to check in on them and make sure that they're getting to appointments and sticking with their treatment plans and doing the things that they need to do to be well. Uh, it's a much sort of gentler approach to supporting people. And there are great examples of that kind of supportive housing that are beginning to appear in different places, but we don't have enough political will or commitment, nor do we have uh, consistently the kind of statutory empowerment 
on the parts of communities to be able to care for people in these kinds of settings. And then there's whole other categories of folks who don't need to be, um, you know, inpatient or in residence at all. But with outpatient commitment, with assertive outpatient care, you know, teams of mobile outreach folks, case, case managers who will check in on people and make sure that their their days are structured and that they're doing what they need to do to be well. We need more of that kind of systematic care. And we just don't have that kind of capacity or, or the commitment to developing that. And that's really where we need to go if we want to get past this prolonged period of you know, incarceration and homelessness, which is what we've been living with for decades now. Yeah. And and you point to the two extremes, right? The institutionalized, you know, example of those, you know, in a corner in a straitjacket, not getting any, any sort of care, but also the outpatient aspect or, um, uh, when we talk about um, the the type of people that we're dealing with in crisis or with severe mental illness, we also have that overlay of drugs and drug abuse, uh, homelessness, like like you pointed out. But you know, people are self medicating, and uh, I think law enforcement is going to feel frustrated on that outpatient side when we have trouble following up with people with outstanding warrants or in subpoenaing witnesses for violent crimes and trying to track them down to get them back into court. You know, we lose court cases because we can't find them in time. So I'm wondering that, you know, it's going to be difficult for um, uh, therapists and professionals, um, health, mental health professionals to hunt these people down too. Um, In your opinion, should we have more facilities or more housing where we can care and keep track of these people? I think so. I think that that is the 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 pathway away from the parks and underpasses has got to be some kind of an alternative where we know that people are being sheltered, we know that they've got access to care, that it's a humane setting, um, but there's a certain amount of restriction on you know or expectations around comings and goings, so that we can support people's health and uh that kind of you know it's it's sort of like a a light version of commitment and it doesn't need to be thought of as a lifelong thing what it is is it's as temporary as can be in the least restrictive environment possible until a person is demonstrably stable enough to have a greater range of liberty and the the you know, what we need to do is move away from thinking that this is criminalization uh, and, you know, jail or prison based, but it does have to be something that is effectively supportive of people's health process, healing process. Yeah. So, you know, it's when, when law enforcement deals with people on the street, it's, it's usually a wide range. Like we talked about drug use, homelessness, um, those who, who just may be acting out in crisis. Um, sometimes it is clearly, I, I want to say just a, a mental health issue, but sometimes it, it, there's an overlay of crime as well. And so in, in your approach to training officers, we have crisis intervention teams. Um, you know, when somebody's having 
in other words, a meltdown on the street, but when they're involved in criminal behavior, whether it's uh, a burglary or shoplifting or a violent robbery or violent assault, um, what's going to be new in, in training before the 988 rollout? Yeah, well, the 988 rollout is coming on so fast that it's hard to believe that there will be a whole lot of, it, there's not a lot of time uh, for readiness and training. And, you know, I think that the crisis intervention team training remains the sort of go-to model for how to respond to crises and, you know, recognizing when somebody's behavior is representative of a mental health condition uh, and having some tools and tricks for understanding how to de-escalate situations rather than aggravating situations. Um, so, you know, I think that CIT is the go-to right now and will remain the go-to, you know, for the foreseeable future as 988 approaches. So when we talk about 988, I talked about it in the introduction, 988 is going to be the new uh, national number, just like 911 is for emergencies. If people yeah. have an issue uh, or a situation with a person in a mental health uh, crisis, they call 988 and walk us through what can they expect when they get a dispatcher on the other end of the line? Well, that's a great question. And um you know, what they can expect will depend on where they're calling from. Um, some communities around the country are, we're all, there's different levels of preparedness for a 988 rollout. Mm-hmm. You know, here in Colorado, we have something called Colorado Crisis Services, which is a statewide uh, 10 digit number. They can be called 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and people can access a clinician. Uh, and in some communities in Colorado, there's capacity for mobile response, not all communities. Um, and so in Colorado, we've got some level of preparedness for a 988. Um, we also passed a piece of legislation this past year anticipating 988, which creates a, a surcharge on people's phone bills so that there's going to be around 14 or so million dollars a year coming in to support uh, 988 response in one way or another. But I think that Colorado is one of maybe four or five states that have that level of preparedness. And then otherwise, just as with 911, you know, the way dispatch is managed varies from community to community. Sometimes it's the sheriff's office. Sometimes it's other, some other kind of county entity. Uh, and what I'm, you know, I think that what in the best case, short-term scenario, uh, what a caller should be able to hope is that the person who answers that 988 call is at least trained to recognize that this is a 988 call and a 911 call, even if it's the same dispatcher's office responding to those calls, which may be the case um, as this thing launches so soon. And, uh, you know, I think that Unfortunately, given the state of readiness and how difficult it is to mobilize a different kind of crisis response, law enforcement in many communities around the country may remain the default respondent to a 988 call simply because there won't be an alternative. And so in, in that, in that kind of scenario, 
The best case will be that a dispatcher will be able to say, this is a 988 call. This is a mental health crisis call as the law enforcement respondents are rolling up on the scene so that at least they go in with their crisis response mentality and, you know, understanding what they're responding to as opposed to, um, you know, a more traditional 911 call. As the communities evolve uh, and we become better equipped and prepared to deal with a 988 call, the long-term expectation of the caller should be that it is less of a law enforcement-based response and that we've got mobile clinical response so that there are people who are, you know, their primary training and vocation is to provide uh, mobile response to people with mental health, experiencing a mental health crisis. I think we're a ways out, we're a ways off to having that kind of level of readiness. Yeah, well, we've got five months to gear up. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I really want to get into the nuts and bolts of it because I always believe that, you know, the devil's in the details, um, not too deep into, into the weeds, but I want to talk about that when we get back in just a moment. I'd like to thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And we are back, and I am speaking with Dr. Vincent Achity. He is the Mental Health Colorado's president and CEO of Mental Health Colorado, and he's been with the Equitus Project, and we're talking about the 988 call-out number that will uh that people can call to get uh dispatched to um send out the appropriate resources and it sounds like we're going to have a variety of resources across the nation depending on the state's preparedness um were law enforcement uh people at the table in 988 um i'm sure you had a round table with public health and um and other infrastructure um you know, one of my fears is that uh, the, the the capabilities and capacities of jurisdictions is not going to be there. It will fall back to law enforcement. Oakland, um, right after, you know, the defund movement started, shifted uh, resources to mental health response. And at last count, they were still under 20 percent um, capable of responding to those calls. Um sounds like uh, it's it's still a work in progress. Yeah, I think very much so, you know, and, you know, this this campaign, Care Not Cuffs, is really about trying to draw attention to this work in progress and do what we can to mobilize public support for for that for exactly that kind of programming so that, you know, the Oakland uh, effort gets the resources it needs from the community in order to make sure that that kind of response is available 24-7. We understand that 
these kinds of initiatives on the part of law enforcement agencies around the country are spotty, you know, and that even where there's great diversion work and, uh, you know, what we would call that care not cuffs effort, that it doesn't cover 24-7. It covers, you know, Monday through Friday from 9 to 3. And we know that that's not where, you know, crises are not contained within that time frame. And um, the the landscape that we're advocating for is where when you call for in a crisis, you're able to access those kinds of quality resources all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and I hope that uh, we're also talking about uh, public health's capacity, um, even during regular times. Uh, you know, we had so many calls for service involving those in mental health crisis that we would often uh, hear en route to the psych emergency um, center that they'd be on diversion or you know a red alert where uh, we had to essentially ask dispatch to look around and find a place where we could send them. So is there a national effort to fortify the resources for, for public health? Well, there's not a consistent um, national effort, but there is a movement. And that's what we would, you know, that's what we would align Care Not Cuffs with that movement is that there's got to be that there there for diversion. You know, we hear those stories about uh, you know, law enforcement officers who take somebody to a hospital or emergency department and are sitting there in their cars watching as the person is discharged. Uh, and then, you know, the, the same person again later than the same day or week. And that, that has got to change. There needs to be reliable access for law enforcement who are using their discernment to recognize that somebody's health needs exceed their criminal threat and make that distinction. There has to be a place for those folks to go. And there's some good examples around the country of communities that have developed that access so that there's, you know, they're designed to be compatible with first responders doing diversion and they're, you know, no wrong door, one-stop shop, as they're called, where, you know, they will say that an officer can be in and out in eight minutes uh, that they'll take people in any condition with any level of need uh, and will make sure that they get the treatment that they need in that setting. Um, we need to see that everywhere. Every community needs to have that kind of health care capacity for people. Yeah, so is is the goal, is the ultimate goal to have someone call 988, get the resources dispatched, and never involve law enforcement at all? Well, That'll depend always on circumstances, you know, so there's so many different kinds of calls. I mean, 988, uh, you know, on its most basic level is intended to be the easy number to remember for suicide prevention mm. and, uh, you know, to, sup to supplant the longer 10-digit numbers for suicide hotlines with something that's easily memorable. And a lot of those calls don't require a mobile response at all. Uh, people can be stabilized um, over the phone with clinical contact and it can lead to, you know, inpatient care, you know, a walk-in care the next day or something like that. So a lot of calls ought to be able to be managed without any kind of mobile response. When it comes to those more urgent cases where a mobile response is required, given the heavily armed nature of our population, there may 
always be a law enforcement requirement as part of a team. The dispatcher for a 988 call should be able to be trained to do that kind of triage and understand, is this the kind of call where we can send in clinicians or social workers or whatever the community has? Or is this a kind of call where we really need to have a co-responder, you know, co-response where you've got a clinician or a social worker uh, accompanied by public safety officer who can make sure that nobody is going to come to harm uh, in that exchange. But we're not going to be able to uncouple uh, the public safety from the health practice in this country anytime soon. Yeah, but we may we may be moving from the primary responder to maybe an escort or an accompaniment. Right. That's right. And we see that, you know, we see really good co-responder programs underway in different places around the country uh, where the, they will either riding together or arriving in separate vehicles and the public safety officer is there. And once they've determined that nobody's at imminent risk of harm, they can move on with their duties and leave the clinician to manage it. Yeah. So with any good policy, uh, we take some time to step back and do an assessment, see how well we're operating. Is there a plan to look at 988 and say, okay, how are we doing? What else do we need to do? Um, at the onset, are we thinking about uh, gearing up the resources, um, like like requiring that every 10th individual hired by EMS or the fire department say, be trained in mental health services? Well, that's a great question. You know, and I think that because, you know, you'd started off earlier in the conversation pointing out that folks who are working in law enforcement end up dealing with a lot of things that they hadn't initially bargained for. (laughs) uh, And that, you know, it might be desirable from that perspective to have more clinical partnership involved but I also really do think that there's, you know, kind of a sea change of foot and that, you know, people going into law enforcement maybe need to just increasingly accept that the nature of the work, you know, public safety, public health, these are not really two different things. These, these are two things, uh, two sides of the same coin. And folks going into law enforcement increasingly probably need to accept that part of this work is social work. And, you know, it's about de-escalation and getting people to the resources that they need. It's not always about fighting crime. Uh, and so the characteristics, you know, of course, you're always going to need to have your, you know, your SWAT teams and folks who are prepared to deal with that kind of a really grave uh, criminal threat. Um, but a lot of patrol work is, you know, neighborhood work and domestic work. And uh, there may just need to be an acceptance that there's a different kind of orientation going into that kind of work. Yeah, I agree with you to a point, but I've got to say that, um, you know, law enforcement officers are the most visible form of government, right? Riding around in uniform in marked cars, uh, a precursor to problems. We don't see that from public health. We don't see it from fire department per se, um, they are response driven. And so when I talk about mission creep, 
um, you know, we went in from law enforcement, from uh, making drug, you know, doing drug enforcement operations to looking for drugs being sold to taking action to now being responsive to administering naloxone or Narcan at scenes of overdoses. As part of 988 or the, the national uh, conversation on mental health and drugs, wouldn't it be uh, better to move some of these duties on to somebody, say, like, make, make fire departments more proactive, put them on the street more, put them more in advance of these kinds of problems? Well, it could be, you know, and I think that that's, this is the, the complicated conversation that we're, we have to be having. And, uh, you know, that's really the main point of Care Not Cuffs is to sort of stimulate this conversation, which given our heavily dis- decentralized nature as a country, we have to have community by community. And, uh, you know, some communities are going to have a political disposition to head in one direction, and some communities are going to have a political disposition to head in another direction, and they're all going to have to work it out for themselves. You know, I think that ideally from a health advocate's perspective, it would be great to have, to have a, a system, you know, a, a responsive health system that involves EMTs, paramedics and fire departments and other health based agencies, um, supplant law enforcement for a lot of this work. And, um, but that's going to require a totally different orientation of resources and commitment that we'll, we will probably see in some communities, but we're not going to see everywhere and not in a hurry. Well, that's great. That's encouraging to hear at least. I mean, the discussion, the conversation has started and uh, we'll see what the electeds uh, do um, in, in response to some of the, the things they talked about, about removing police from situations they didn't believe they should be involved in. So now's the time. And uh, 988 is, is a good start. Um, and I'm sure, you know, there'll be some, some issues with the rollout, but it's a start and it's a national start as opposed to, you know, Colorado, California, New York, and, you know, there, there's all these gaps in between. Um, how can our listeners find out more about the Equitas Project and training? I've seen the news articles starting to roll out that 988 is coming. It's coming. It's coming in July. So will we be uh, more uh, privy to the details? Where can we find out? Uh, carenotcuffs.org is a website that's the site where we'll be increasingly concentrating all of our communications efforts. And um, that's also a pathway to learning more about other uh, efforts by the Equitas Project to disentangle mental health and criminal justice. Here Not Cuffs is available. We're Facebook and Instagram and all the usual suspects for social media. Great. And and how about projects you're working on? Where, where can we find those? Uh, sure. The EquitasProject.org um, will will lead to other work that we're doing to disentangle mental health and criminal justice, as well as to our other advocacy efforts across the lifespan of um, mental health. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Vincent Achity of the Mental Health Colorado and the Equitas Project. Uh, appreciate your time and your efforts in helping uh, solve this problem. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your interest and for all the hard work that 
your listeners are doing to protect and serve the communities. Hey, to our listeners, thanks again for listening. I hope you found today's show interesting. Let us know what you think. And are you ready for 988? Let us know. And if you have someone or something you'd like to hear about on the show, shoot me an email at policingmatters at police1.com, policingmatters at police1.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you soon.